Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. It is good to be back with you this morning. Last weekend, as many of you know, we were at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you for sending us to that. And it was a really good experience, and I'll look forward to sharing with you more about that here in days to come. But I also want to thank uh, Brother Randy for filling in last week. I listened to the sermon online, as you can do anytime. Go to sellmorebaptist.com and catch up on our sermons. If you miss one, he did a great job, and I'm very thankful for him. Well, today is Father's Day, and so happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. To all you men who love your wife as Christ loved the church, who care for your children and raise them to fear the Lord, who work hard to provide for your family, we appreciate you and we honor you today. Godly dads are so important, not only to the family, but to the church and to the nation. Being a dad is not an easy job, it is a vitally important one, and we thank God for all of our men. Along those lines, a father and son went fishing one day, and after a couple hours out in the boat, the boy suddenly became curious about the world around him, and he asked his father, how does this boat float? The father thought for a moment, and he said, I don't know, son. The boy returned to his contemplation, then he turned back to his father, and, Dad, how do fish breathe underwater? And again, the father replied, son, I don't know. Well, a little, late, little bit later, the boy asked his father, why is the sky blue? And again, his dad said, son, I really don't know. And worried that he was going to annoy his father, he says, dad, do you mind me asking you all these questions? And the dad said, of course not, son. If you don't ask questions, you'll never learn anything. (laughs) How many know that we have a father in heaven who never minds us asking him questions? And unlike us earthly dads, our heavenly father does have all the answers. And we find those answers in his word. So let's turn our attention now to today's text. In our passage this morning, we're going to talk about the primary way that our heavenly father has historically related to his people. And that is through what we know as covenants. A covenant in the most basic terms is a legally binding agreement between two parties. There are several examples of covenants found in the pages of Scripture between God and various individuals, such as Adam and Noah and Abraham and David. But the two overarching covenants that we find are the Old Covenant, what we often call the Old Testament, and the New Covenant or the New Testament. Now, the Old Covenant was God's covenant with the nation of Israel. The terms of that covenant were that if Israel obeyed God's laws— including the various elements of the sacrificial system, that God would bless Israel, that he would multiply them, that he would protect them, and that he would bring them into fellowship with himself. In contrast, the new covenant is God's covenant with all people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The new covenant replaces the old. The terms of the new covenant are that anyone who repents of their sin and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ his death on the cross as the payment for their sin, his resurrection from the dead, and then calls upon his name, shall be saved. They shall have eternal life. 
One of the main points that the writer of Hebrews makes in this book is that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. The last verse we looked at two weeks ago was chapter eight and verse six. It clearly says that he, Jesus, is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now, it may seem obvious to us that the new covenant is better than the old, but if you are a Jew or a Hebrew living in the first century, Christianity is brand new. And the new covenant is, well, brand new. And your people have been under the old covenant for thousands of years, and that's all you've ever known. And you can see why some might say, we feel more comfortable with the way we've always done it. Now, none of us in this room would ever say those words. Maybe other people would. But in today's text, the writer of Hebrews makes the case as clearly as he can why the new covenant is better than the old. So let's begin reading and see what we can learn today. And we're going to start by looking at verse 7 and the first part of verse 8. Here's what the writer says. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, and we'll stop right there. Here's the first point this morning. The old covenant was flawed because it was based on outward conformity. Verse 7 says that the first or old covenant was not faultless. In other words, it was not without defect. Now, does this mean that the old covenant was bad? No. The old covenant was designed by God. It was instituted by God. It was very good for the time and purpose it served. But the fact of the matter is that the old covenant was never meant to be permanent. It was designed to point to a coming Messiah and to serve as a preview of a new and better covenant to come. In truth, the old covenant could not be lasting or permanent because its whole premise was outward conformity. Obey these rules, follow these commandments, offer these sacrifices. And because humans are sinners by our very nature, there's no way that anyone could keep the terms of the old covenant perfectly. This is what verse 8 implies when it says that the fault with the old covenant was not in the one who made the covenant, but with them, it says, meaning the Israelites. In other words, the weakness in the old covenant was not God. Let's make that very clear. God always keeps his end of the deal. God always keeps his promises. He is always faithful. No, the flaw in the old covenant was the other party, the Jewish people. Unless we be too hard on them for not keeping the terms of the covenant, we need to remember that if we had been in their place, we would have broken it too. Because we all have a sin nature. And as fallen creatures, we understand there's going to be times we mess up. In our sin nature, tragically, there's going to be times that we disobey God, that we break the conditions of the covenant. And this, by the way, is why the sacrificial system was built into the old covenant. It was an acknowledgement by God, by the covenant maker, that no human could keep the covenant perfectly. And so restitution would have to be made over and over and over again by bringing animals to the priests for sacrifice as payment for sin. This arrangement between God and man went on for a long time. 
but God never meant for it to last forever. It's like this. When Rachel and I first got married, we lived in a very small duplex near Southwest Baptist University. Did we view that as our dream home? (laughs) Did we view that as our permanent home? No. Did it have a few cockroaches? Maybe. (laughs) Did the little girl who lived on the other side of the duplex draw pictures on my truck with a rock? Yes, that happened. But at the time, it was what we needed. It was close to campus. It was cheap. It was a good place for us to live. It prepared us for future homes and that we learned certain things. Like when you hang things in drywall, do you all know you have to use a drywall anchor or they come crashing to the floor in the middle of the night? You would think we would know that, wouldn't you? But we didn't. We were young and green. But we understood from the beginning that place wasn't going to be our permanent home, but it was good for the time being. In like manner, the old covenant was good for what it was intended to be during the time period in which it existed. But God never intended the old covenant to be his permanent contract, if you will, with his people. Rather, it was meant to point to something and to prepare us for something much, much better. The next set of verses we'll read are a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah who prophesied of a much better covenant to come. Look at the rest of verse 8 through verse 10. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Now these are the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here's how we summarize this. Here's the second point. The new covenant is favored because it is based on inward transformation. Not outward conformity, but inward transformation. The writer of Hebrews wants his readers to understand here that this concept of a new covenant is not a new idea. It's not something that he came up with or that the apostles came up with. It's not a modern invention. It's ancient. And so what does he do? He quotes to the Hebrews from one of their own prophets. And not just any prophet, but one of the most well-known, well-respected, most venerated prophets in the history of the Jewish people, people the prophet Jeremiah. And what did Jeremiah say some 600 years prior to this moment? We see it there in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. At the time this was written, the kingdom was divided, right? Israel and Judah. He says it's for all of them. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, see here, even Jeremiah hundreds of years ago said that a new covenant was coming. Now that's pretty good validation, right? That's like, that's the mic drop moment, right? Jeremiah said it's going to happen. And if you're a Jew, if if you're a Hebrew, are you going to argue with Jeremiah? I don't think so. And so that's a wonderful point to him to bring out. But we're still faced with the question, what makes the new covenant better than the old? 
Jeremiah tells us in verse 9, the new covenant won't be like the old covenant that the Israelites ultimately broke and, and disregarded. That's because the new covenant isn't a covenant based on outward conformity written on tablets of stone. But rather the new covenant is a covenant of inward transformation with God's laws written on our mind and in our heart. Now, what does that mean exactly? Remember, we said that the terms of the new covenant, how we enter into that covenant, are repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Specifically, putting our faith in his death on the cross as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins and his resurrection from the dead and then calling on his name for salvation. And then baptism, which we'll observe later today, is the public symbol or the public sign of the covenant that we have entered into the covenant when we, by the grace of God, repent of our sin and believe on Jesus, a wonderful and supernatural thing happens. The Holy Spirit of God comes and takes up residence in our heart. And once the Holy Spirit sets up shop in our heart, he begins to do a sanctifying work within us, molding us into the image of Jesus Christ and transforming us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And so as a Christian in covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ, life is no longer about following a list of external rules. It's no longer about thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. But rather the Christian life under the new covenant is simply one of submitting ourselves fully to God, being filled with the Holy Spirit and letting the Spirit do his sanctifying work within us. In so doing, the Holy Spirit will put God's laws in our mind, and he will write them up on our heart. He will guide us into a deep and abiding inward relationship with the Heavenly Father. As an earthly father, if someone were to ask one of my kids, describe your relationship with your father, I would be grieved if all they could say is, my dad has a list of rules and I follow them to keep him happy. Of course I have rules and standards of behavior that I expect my kids to follow. But more than that, I love them and I desire a genuine relationship with them. And that's how the Heavenly Father is with us. Now don't misunderstand. That's not to say our conduct doesn't matter. Far from it. Holiness matters most. Jesus said, be holy as I am holy. But the point is we don't obtain holiness by trying harder or by following a list of external rules. Under the new covenant, we obtain holiness by loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and letting his spirit then transform us from the inside out. The new covenant is better than the old covenant because it is based on inward transformation. Now, the next question that we might ask is, what benefits do we gain from coming to God through the new covenant as opposed to coming to him through the old? Well, our next two verses address that question. Look at verses 11 and 12. The quotation from Jeremiah continues. He says, None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Point three, when we come to God through the new covenant in Jesus Christ, we experience three things that I see in these verses. Number one, his fellowship. Number two, his forgiveness. And number three, what I'm going to term his holy forgetfulness. Let's talk about these briefly. Number one, his fellowship. Verse 11 says there's coming a day for God's people when it will be unnecessary for us to teach our neighbor or to teach our brother or to teach other people to know the Lord. Why? Because it says we shall all know him from the least to the greatest. We shall be in perfect fellowship with the Lord. Now, obviously this is talking about a time yet in the future when the kingdom of God has been consummated. All of those who abide in the kingdom will fully know God. We will see him face to face. And in that day, there will be no need for evangelism. There's no mission trips in heaven. They're not necessary because we'll all know the Lord and we'll all be in perfect fellowship with him. Now, that time is not yet. For now, our duty as assigned to us in the Great Commission by our Lord is to tell as many people about him as we possibly can to make disciples of all the nations so that all the peoples of the world may experience this perfect fellowship and this perfect knowledge of the Heavenly Father. As Christians, we look forward with anticipation to the day when our faith will be sight when missions and evangelism will no longer be necessary because in that eternal kingdom, all will know the Lord. The second thing we see is that when we come to God through the new covenant in Christ, we experience his forgiveness. Look again at the first part of verse 12. It says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Did you know that when we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, he extends mercy to us. And that he forgives all of our unrighteousness, all of our sins, past, present, and future. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to what? Cleanse us. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says that what each of us deserve because of our sins is death and hell. But by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, God extends mercy to us. Not giving us what we deserve, but imputing to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ and granting to us eternal life. God is so very good. He is so merciful. He is so forgiving. The psalmist says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. And aren't you glad about that? He is a forgiving God. And then not only do we benefit from his forgiveness, but with that number three, we benefit from his holy forgetfulness. The end of verse 12 says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. You see, not only does God forgive our sins, but he intentionally chooses to forget our sins. In the eyes of God, once our sins are forgiven, They are divinely erased forever and ever. Now, the Bible uses a number of metaphors to communicate this truth. 
The psalmist says that he separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west, an immeasurable distance. The prophet Micah says he treads our sins underfoot, that he, I like this one, he hurls our iniquities into the depths of the sea, drowned, sinking to the bottom, never again to surface. The bottom line is that God never, ever brings up old sins that have been covered by the blood of his son. God does not rub our old sins in our face. He does not hold them against us. He does not harbor anger toward us. He does not harbor resentment toward us. Those sins are gone. They are forgiven. They are forgotten when we come to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, man has a hard time forgetting, don't we? We have a hard time forgetting the sins that have been committed against us. Sometimes we have a hard time forgetting the sins that we've committed. We have a hard time forgiving others, and especially we have a hard time sometimes forgiving ourselves. But God does not And what we must realize is that any time that the shame of our old sins begins to reemerge in our heart and in our mind, that if those sins have been confessed to the Lord and forgiven and we feel any kind of shame or guilt over them, that's not of God. That's of the evil one. That's of the devil digging up old bones that have long since been buried and put away by our Lord. And when that happens, when Satan reminds us of who we used to be and what we've done in our past, we need to remind him and ourselves that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That those sins have been covered and paid for by his blood and thus they have been forgiven and forgotten by the only one who matters. And that is our Father in heaven. Praise God for his fellowship, for his forgiveness, and for his holy forgetfulness. Now let's close with one more important truth that we see in verse 13. It says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Final point this morning, the very fact that there is a new covenant means that the old covenant is obsolete. The writer of Hebrews is telling his readers as clearly as he knows how, quit flirting with the old covenant. Quit trying to go back to it. It's gone. It's obsolete. It's ready to vanish away. It's been replaced by something much better. A new covenant instituted by Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. You and I sitting in this room today, we read passages like this and Like, I don't know how this applies to me. I'm not tempted to go back to animal sacrifices. I'm not tempted to find me a human priest and confess my sins to him. And so we may think there's no application in this for us, but that would be a mistake. And here's why. Every time that we fall for the notion that we can either earn our salvation by good works or keep our salvation by good works, we are in essence reverting back to the old covenant. We are reverting back to law, back to a system of external conformity rather than a system of internal transformation. Anytime that we have the mindset of, I've got to try harder to be a better person, 
I've got to try harder to keep God's commandments. That's law. That's old covenant. That's been replaced by something better. The correct mindset under the new covenant is not, I've got to try harder. The correct mindset is, I've got to submit myself fully to Jesus Christ. I've got to love God with everything I am and seek to serve him with everything that I have. And as I do that, as I put God first and truly as the center of my life and my number one priority, then his Holy Spirit will indwell me and fill me and lead me and guide me and shape me and the Holy Spirit will help me to become more like Jesus. That's the new covenant. And it's far superior to the old. You and I can't clean up ourselves. That's the bottom line. The Holy Spirit has to do that. Now, as we come to a time of response this morning, I would ask you, are you trying to please God by following a list of rules? Are you under the mistaken notion The false notion that if you're just a good enough person and do more good than you do bad, that God will accept you and you'll spend eternity in heaven. That's a lie. That's false. The truth is you'll never, ever, ever be good enough. The only way to come to the Father is through faith in Jesus Christ. He was the perfect sacrifice. He paid for our sins on the cross once and for all. And so if we'll merely turn from our sin and put our faith in him, he'll save us and he'll give us eternal life. And we'll find favor in the sight of God because when God the Father looks upon us, he will see the perfect blood of his son. On this Father's Day, we need to know that we have a heavenly father who loves us and has made a way for us to have a relationship with him. But that way is the new covenant through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're ready to become a Christian, to follow Jesus, we're going to have a song of response here in just a moment. I'm going to be standing here on the floor. Come, walk to me. Say, Josh, I'm ready to be a Christian, and I want to let everyone know that I'm ready to follow Jesus and give my life to him. If you're here today and you are a Christian, but you've never given the outward sign that you're in the new covenant, which is baptism, you need to do that. God commands that you do that. Guess what? This is your lucky day. We're having baptisms after church today. If you're here and you need to be baptized, you come right now and say, I want to be baptized today. I love Jesus. I've given my life to him and it's time for me to do that. And we'll baptize you at the river here in just a few minutes. If you're here today and you want to join this church, unite with us in membership or just come and pray, that's what this time is for. So let's stand to our feet at this time and we're going to have our song of response. Brother James, what song are we going to sing today? I Surrender All. We know the words to that one, don't we? Let's sing I Surrender All. Let's sing it like we mean it. And if you need to come, you come.